probably one of the most natural and normal things about childhood is childhood fears. I had mine. I suspect you yours. They are normal. As I have said, they are natural. But for most of us, the normal and natural would occasionally take on the air of the compulsive and the obsessive. I'm sure you must have had, <clears throat> that's not just intuition, it's an educated guess based on the fact of listening to people for 20 years about fears, many of which emanated from childhood. Some of my childhood fears, which are all based ultimately on the single or the singular human fear, which is the threat of non-being. That's a greater threat than even death, because death just looks like non-being. The journey of the human center of consciousness called the ego, is to establish a being, an identity. And the great fear for children is this sense of not being. It's not just disappearing. Disappearing is a fear because it is uh, the premature exiting of an immature identity. That's why children fear the bathwater going down the drain because it looks very much like disappearing prematurely. So illnesses, pain, displeasure, disapproval are all parts of this sense that I am not welcome here and if I'm not welcome here I can't be here. Now, my five childhood fears were tornadoes, polio, appendicitis, and tooth decay. Those were the top four. The fifth I will reserve for a moment. As some of you may know, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. <clears throat> that small town in Oklahoma was in what was known to the old timers. It was in Tornado Alley. As a matter of fact, Drumright has had four great tornadoes, two of which occurred before I was born, but yet were still in the collective consciousness of the people. The great tornado of 38. The great tornado that came during the war. And I was lucky enough to have moved to Drumright during the war, but after the great tornado 
in 41. Drumright had not had a tornado for 15 years. And I lived in constant fear every spring. We had a siren that would blow in town when the weather was threatening. Or as the old timers would say, a sarene. The sarene would blow if a threatening storm was imminent. And this was before the days, of course, of radar and TV. Although we did have one TV station, Channel 2 in Tulsa, that was on all the time. And it was the only station we could get. And I do remember during one great threatening cloud that had come up in the late spring, where you could almost feel the tension of nature getting ready to do something, purge something. And we were watching the television and they had a newscaster and they had this rudimentary elementary radar system and they were tracking a tornado cloud. It was live TV. And this man was scared to death petrified. And he said, the tornado has been sighted within miles of our TV station. Even as I speak, hail is hitting upon the tin roof. You could see and feel the anxiety in him. It got closer step by step and he got more anxious. And then he said, we will have to go off the air for a moment. Uh, and they did. They went off the air and for all that we knew, he had been absolutely destroyed by this great wind. He came back on the TV within a few minutes and said, you all can relax. The tornado has gone on to Claremore. <laughs> I always thought of those poor people in Claremore sitting, <laughs> watching the TV. In 1956, when I was in the sixth grade, the most dreaded thing happened. A tornado hit Drumright. I'd been to the movie. I came home, as a matter of fact, in a rare appearance, my father came and picked me up at the movie because there was such a threatening cloud. As the old-timer said, a cloud had blown up. And as we sat in our house, this tornado came and hit within a block of our house. This entire lecture in itself, the metaphor and reality of being in that tornado. But I survived the tornado. One of the great childhood fears of my life was that a tornado would come and blow us all away. And it came, and five people were killed. But we survived. And it's interesting about entering the thing you fear the most is that if you enter it and survive it, you no longer fear it. It's risky business, though. 
very risky. Polio. Many of you grow, grew up during that great childhood fear of polio. Uh, several images I have. One is on the newsreels at the movie theater. They had a scene of a ward with, and I've never liked this term, it's just an ominous term, with iron lungs lined up. And little children lying on their backs in iron lungs with mirrors above so that you could see their faces and that they could relate to those to whom they were speaking. Polio was a great constant threat. It afflicted, of course, as it did with everybody. Some of my friends, I remember one little girl named Gail who came back to school in the fall having been taken away to Tulsa with polio and came back with braces on her legs and crutches. Polio was one of those great, great threats growing up, one of the great fears. The inoculation came in my childhood when Salk or whoever deserves the credit for the inoculation and the realization, once again, that it is the very germ of that which is threatening when it enters you that protects you from that which you fear. The third great threat was appendicitis, and I don't really know why, except Butch Gibson had appendicitis. Butch lived in our neighborhood, a singularly unattractive character. It was too loud. He um, probably did, I think, the best imitation in Christendom of Tarzan's monkey cheetah. I'm unaware of where the contest was held, but were it held, I would nominate Butch Gibson as having the most shrill voice, uh, which he would then imitate Tarzan's pet monkey, Cheetah. He had appendicitis. He was taken, another word, ominous word, for an emergency appendectomy. There was no hospital in Drumrod. He was taken to Cushing. I think about a lot of things about Cushing, but one of the things I remember about Cushing that has become more and more relevant to me is that it was the only Episcopal church anywhere near was in Cushing. There was not an Episcopal church in Drumright. I went to the Methodist church in those days. But we had some friends who used to drive to Cushing to receive the Eucharist. For a small boy, that sounded a little bit like going for an emergency appendectomy. <laughs> I mean, what kind of church was it you'd have to travel 10 miles to receive the Eucharist? Things change, don't they? An emergency appendectomy, it sounded ominous, particularly when Thelma, his mother, 
recounted the emergency to my mother within my hearing. Uh, particularly because the incision, which probably was done by a family doctor in those days who did everything from uh, treat childhood diseases to treat uh, large livestock, <laughs> probably did the surgery and evidently something about the stitches that didn't quite work and an infection developing and I remember the word pus. <laughs> How are you all doing? <laughs> dripping from the incision. <laughs> Talking about childhood fears and words that get into you that bring this inordinate fear all based on the threat of non-being. I am struggling to be and to become and all of this threatening um, barrier to my becoming are out there. A friend of mine whose mother had been ill, her sister, his aunt, lived with them. Mother went to the doctor and came home and was put to bed. And he asked, what's wrong with mother? And he received this answer. And think about it, being five years old. Son, she has pernicious anemia. We know that's tired blood, but <laughs> when you're five and you hear pernicious anemia, every time I got a sense of a stitch in my side, I thought, emergency appendectomy. <laughs> um, I've, to date, not had an appendicitis, but my son did. Son Pittman enacted that for me, and having now gone through the worst hell, which is having your son have an emergency appendectomy, which means the sense of the DNA that's in you of nurture, where that when your child hurts, uh, you one would feel less pain were one able to take the pain himself and your child goes for an emergency appendectomy and survives it, you're able to check off another inordinate childhood fear. Tooth decay. The only dentist in Drumright was Dr. Cofield. I have no idea what kind of human being he was. But I have an image of him that is mine. His office was on the second floor over Citizens Bank. His wife was very attractive. Even as a small child, I imagine they were in their 30s, I found her extremely attractive. Madonna-like in her complexion, her demeanor, starched white in those days 
They wore starched white uniforms. His wife was his nurse, dental hygienist, and she wore a starched white uniform. And she had the most pleasant smile, which I find totally appropriate for a small-town dentist's wife. <laughs> you know, certain things that are just appropriate like that. Like a priest friend of mine adopted a child, and a woman at the baptism of the priest's adopted child said, what a wonderful way for a priest to have a child. <clears throat> certain things just seem... Tooth decay. The fear of having to go to Dr. Caulfield's office was overwhelming. Uh, the pain of those drills in those days, <clears throat> I must admit he did not have a foot-driven drill, but whatever motor there was that drove that drill in those days drove it oh so slowly. <laughs> he also smoked and had a mustache um, and I could smell the smell of tobacco on his fingers, and they were large, hairy hands. <laughs> and as he peered down into my mouth, it was pre-scope. <laughs> the smell of that stale tobacco on his mustache and on his breath, as he looked to see if I had any cavities was uh, an unpleasant memory. And I remember one particular morning when my mother told me that at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on Saturday morning that I had an appointment with Dr. Cofield. And my brother and I were going to have to walk downtown to Dr. Cofield's office. And of course my brother, the colonel, knew no pain. <laughs> and for him it was just another event in a regular day to go to the dentist's office. Plus, he was one of impeccable personal hygiene and he never failed to brush his teeth. I never failed To, to not remember to brush my teeth. And so the colonel and I would go down and he would go first and he would be through and he would come out and you guessed it, he had no cavities. And I would go in and Dr. Cofield would breathe on me. And in that moment I would have the sense that this would be my last act on earth was to have Dr. Cofield in my mouth <laughs> grinding away at me. I also had the sense that probably this was the payment for all my sins. <laughs> that morning I woke up and it was Saturday and we were out of school but I had this dread in me, knowing that we had to go downtown to Dr. Caulfield's office and 
I thought maybe if I just went back to sleep that mother would forget and I wouldn't have to go. I even contemplated that maybe non-being would be better than having to go have Dr. Cofield get to the root of my problem. And you know what? She forgot. And whatever time it was, 10 or 11 or so forth, was coming near and I watched this alarm clock that we had on the dresser and within 10 minutes of redemption, the colonel comes in and says, we got to go to the dentist. <laughs> Tornadoes, polio, appendicitis and tooth decay. Well, medical science has redeemed us from that fourth fear. Uh, there's something about dentist office this day with anesthesia, high-tech procedure that my children don't seem to dread the dentist office the way we did. But these four fears could not hold a candle to my fifth and greatest fear. And that was to be alone. To be alone was the thing I feared the most. Now, that is not an unusual fear for a child to be alone, and for good reason. A child does not have the resources either internally or externally to survive without a parent or a parental figure. Whether we're talking about physical development, spiritual or psychological development, children simply cannot develop on their own. They do not have the external or internal resources for such intricate, complex development. Whether it is nurture with food or nurture with emotional security, or teaching just the elementary survival techniques that must be learned, a child can't survive without a parent, so it is a natural fear. Now, if you couple that with a highly nurturing mother who has convinced you that you cannot exist without her, you have a doubly difficult time imagining yourself alone. How could I ever possibly survive without her? And being alone, I'm not now talking about sitting quietly in your own bedroom doing a model airplane. I'm not talking about being let off at the movie to go to the movie without her. I'm not talking about even going to summer camp. I'm talking about being left alone. There's such an inordinate fear for children to be left alone. Have you ever seen the panic on their faces when mother disappears? Have you ever seen the manipulation and exploitation of mothers with their children using that fear? I would rather have gone to Dr. Cofield 
in a tornado <laughs> with a pain in my side than be left alone. One of my greatest dreads and fears was being alone. Children have great horrors and fantasies about abandonment. The fear of abandonment is a common human fear beginning a childhood. And the irony and paradox of the human development is that we have to continually separate from our dependencies in order to grow and become. And so we have this double-edged urge to stay and leave. Fear of abandonment that I couldn't make it alone and the need to separate or I'll never become one. Now you couple that with a strong mother who has a strong need to have someone dependent upon her and this aloneness can become not only an inordinate fear of childhood but a significant neurosis in adulthood. Unless one is able to develop oneself into an individual, then this remnant and residual of fear of abandonment will continue through life. You may get to where you can go to the dentist and sit through a thunderstorm, but this fear of being alone is a common human neurosis. And this time of year, it seems to be accentuated. In the sense of when all of the celebration of family and togetherness is going on, there stirs up in us this sense, this fear of being alone. Once again, I'm not talking about those joyous days when everybody's gone you finally have the day to yourself. I'm not talking about coming home from a tired day at the office and wanting to retire to the study by the fire to drink brandy and read. I'm talking about that bone-chilling sense that I don't matter, that I don't have authenticity and authority within my own existence, that I am dependent upon another or others for my identity. It is the sense that I have within me this machine called a body and this complex spirit called a soul that must be generated. It needs a generator. The question is, is that generator within me or outside of me? For the child, it is not developed. The child does not have sufficient internal resources to generate survival, self-esteem, worth, authority, authenticity, or any of those things that make up autonomy. 
But the adult has that as a possibility. But at this time when the hopes and fears of all the years are met in one night, it comes that residual sense, that bone-chilling sense, that each of us truly is alone. For that is a fact. Each of us is alone. Nobody can live your life for you. Nobody can take your pain for you. One can enter it with you, but one cannot remove it from you. The thing that is important about belonging is that someone will enter my pain with me. But the fact is of being alone is nobody can take it from me. That each of us must bear our own life. We were born to bear our own life, and yet for the first 15 years we were totally dependent for identity and for our own resources externally upon another, and then slowly we have tried to take this on ourselves to become a human being. Human beings are always becoming, and one of the things we are becoming is independent and individual. And we hang on in all kinds of neurotic and dependent ways to others and bad situations because we don't have the sense that we can exist apart from another. And this time of year it is so depressing for all of us, even those of us who are in the midst of families, uh, to remember the time when, and to watch home movies and to realize that three or four of the people that you're viewing are not here, are not with us. Such as I did yesterday, watching a videotape of all of our home movies put in an hour and a half of uh, somewhere between reminiscence and nostalgia and seeing my own parents there holding my own little babies, and neither my little babies nor my parents are either one there. If I was dependent upon them for my identity, I have none. And so those fears that we had of tornadoes and appendectomies and polio and tooth decay are only ego awarenesses of the greatest threat which is non-being. And so what would the remedy be for that? Well, it would be to graduate continually through separations into a sense of one's own selfhood. I find that very difficult to do alone. And so one needs a series of soulmates who hold hands as they take the treacherous, uh, tight uh, rope walk out to be alone. In addition to that, one needs a clear and eternal sense that I belong to someone greater than anyone. That my true being 
my true conception is from God. God conceived me. I was birthed through two human beings, but God conceived of me. And like the first creation, when God saw what he had created, he said, he is good. He is very good. Not good in the sense of the ability to follow all of Mother's rules, but good in the sense that all that I want him to become is within him to be. All he needs is within his system. That he is a self-contained unit, an individual. Now, one of the great confusions is that the word individual does not mean isolated. The irony and the paradox, of course, is that we cannot become ourselves apart from another. Parents, siblings, friends, lovers, children. And yet at the same time, none of them can live our lives for us. That continuing sense of separation, fear of abandonment, that sense of related, of dependency and independence. The word individual does not mean isolated. It means cannot be divided. So that building one's individuality doesn't mean do so in isolation, and it doesn't mean becoming a recluse. To become an individual means nothing can divide me, not even being alone. Loneliness is a great fear, and loneliness may be a symptom of one who has not individuated, which probably is the description of 90% of the human beings that I know. Each of us suffers from loneliness and fear of being alone. It is primary. It is a primary fear that carried all through our lives. So I'm fond of saying we must be weak enough to meet our need, to, we must be weak enough to admit our need before we are strong enough to meet it. And we must all be weak enough to admit our fear of aloneness before we can be strong enough to meet such. And to develop a selfhood, which is, I think, the sum and substance of the Christian message is that we were created to become whatever it is that we were created to be. And that we have a sovereign right and an obligation to become that apart from any other. And for nobody's pleasure and delight other than the one who brought us into existence, which is not the mother or the father, but the God of all creation. And that our journey is to receive the pleasure and delight that God has in us. And that is the singular relationship that builds true soul and true selfhood. One cannot become what one was created to be without a relationship with the Creator. And however you describe it, whatever tradition of language system is yours, whatever set of symbols or sacred story you adhere to, one must have a relationship with the Creator, because that's where the ultimate 
and unconditional affirmation and confirmation and authentication comes from. And everybody has that. The second is to have a model of what authentic human existence might look like if we saw it. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's what authentic human existence looks like. Think of the tornadoes and pains in his side. Authentic human existence is that we suffer into existence and having survived, discover indescribable joy. To have completed and integrated that fear so that we do live a part of our lives not disabled by elementary and primary fears. Being alone, being one of them. It is possible to overcome your fear of being alone the same as it is the dentist or an appendectomy. Because each of us is. And as long as you deny or avoid your aloneness, it has control of you. If one admits and recognizes this fear, then one is moved to separate from whatever it is that is keeping us from becoming ourselves. Life has a way of separating you from everything you thought you were dependent upon in order to see if you will prosper without it. I'm fond of saying we are all in an intensive care unit being kept alive by all of these external issues and individuals. And life has a way of unplugging them one at a time to see if the patient will prosper without the artificial resources. They'll all be taken away. Your parents will be taken from you. Your children will leave you. Your job will run out. All of those things that have sustained you externally will all disappear. Will the patient have enough internal resource to generate a life alone? It's the question. I'm committed as a priest of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ the fact that Christianity holds within it from the very beginning all that we need to generate a life and the model we need to see authenticity when it's acted out. And you must learn to accept your acceptance because you are accepted. Even though you may find yourself unacceptable, scarred, fearful, afraid, you are acceptable. That's what this Christmas is all about is to say that you are as important to God as this one who was born at this time because God gave him up for you. I conclude by reading a meditation 
written in an international publication widely distributed, written by the dean of a cathedral in the southwest. <laughs> the very thought that God delights in us is a realization of fundamental worth that is the difference between a life of primal emptiness and a life of primary value. Each of us is a soul searching for authentication. The collective experience seems to be that no outward awarding of praise can satisfy the inward need for worth. To capture even a glimpse of the possibility that God delights in our being may be the only awareness that can begin to build an inner core of selfhood. To know at some substantial level of our being that God takes pleasure in us means that we might find something about ourselves that would be alluring enough to initiate a relationship. We might begin to know ourselves, to affirm ourselves, to love ourselves, to become ourselves. This self-love is deeper than the narcissistic inflation that seduces one into believing one doesn't need God's love. It is, after all, the opposite. God delights in you. This means you might do as much for yourself. I don't think I could have said it better. <laughs> Amen.